0: Amen. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. The Austin Stone is one church that actually has six congregations around the city of Austin. So we gather together with other families of faith this morning. And so while I happen to be downtown this morning, there's also a stream being received this morning, at least at our south congregation um, and at our west congregation as well. And so you're part of this broader community of believers across the this city today. Hebrews 7 is where we will be. We're continuing in our uh, study that's going to take us a couple of years to get through this ancient epistle to the Hebrews. And this morning, you're going to need to just put your special attention focus on, right? It's going to be dense. It's going to be complicated, but I'm hoping to uh, make it as understandable as possible. And then I'm hoping that the application point, at least, will be very simple for us to digest Today? What do we do with ancient texts that are very difficult to understand? Well, before I entered into full-time vocational ministry as a pastor, I was a high school English teacher. Some of you know this in Johannesburg, South Africa. That means I had the unenviable task of receiving 35 to 40 adolescents at a time in each class, right, juniors and seniors in high school, and trying to persuade largely uninterested adolescents that some ancient and obscure texts, like ones written by Chaucer or Austin or Dickens or Shakespeare were relevant and applicable and understandable in their world. They, they really struggled to see how, right? And so we would mix it in, I would mix it in with some creative writing texts from their context. This was the early 2000s, and so we would mix in Jay-Z lyrics and um, some, some of the, the, the lyrics of Nirvana and some other prophets of the day and age, right? Nirvana's not just a branded T-shirt from Target, um, kids. This was an actual band, real people, um, in the early 90s. Look it up, um, it, it, it was incredible. 30 years ago now, and when you did those kind of texts, right, when, when we did Jay-Z lyrics, the kids are like, I get it, I get it, because he's talking about stuff that I'm talking about, right, because every kid thinks they, they, they're a, like a rapper, um, and uh, I understand it, his struggles are my struggles, his victories are my victories, right, but when you were trying to persuade them of something from the 16th century, they were like, I don't get it, and I don't care, Right? And so what would you have to do in order to get someone to care about an ancient and obscure text? Well, you had to build some bridges of meaning, right? to help them to cross over, to go like, oh, I see... What does this mean? Some, some of the bridge you have to build is just language, right? So Chaucer uh, reads more like German than it does like English. And so you have to build some language things. You have to say, like, when he says this word with all those consonants, here's what he means, right? And so uh, language is always evolving and changing for us curmudgeons who are uh, stuck in the past and don't think that SMS or text speak is real speak. Language moves, it changes, right? We drop vowels all over the place um, and then add them back in. It's just part of the ongoing cycle. So that's one of the bridges. The other bridge you have to build is context, right? What was... Go- Going on in their world, uh, what was going on in their world? But there's a third thing that, you, that that helps you to build context and meaning and understanding in what seems like an obscure ancient text, it's called authorial intent. What were they trying to say? Right? Uh, what was their intention? What do they intend to? to tell you. Now, there's a lot of deconstructionist uh, post-postpond approaches to literary critique that none of you care about that says that authorial intent doesn't matter, but it really does. Because when it doesn't matter, then meaning is purely subjective, and then the world is chaos and anarchy, um, and then Chaucer turns over in his grave again and again So I didn't mean that, right? I had an intention, I had a particular meaning that I was speaking into that text, and so it is something that we have to have as a factor that strongly influences Meaning, now listen, that might be obscure to You might go like, I'm not interested in the literature, so uh, move it along, right, uh, foreign chap um, with the accent. I'm, uh, I'm not interested in that at all. Well, well, think about just normal communication. Have you ever been misunderstood in your intent? You've said something that you thought was going to be encouraging, and it ended up being discouraging. Has this ever happened to you? It's happened to me a lot, right? Um, well, what do we say? Well, we say, I'm so sorry that wasn't my intent at all. And so while I realize I injured you with that and I'm responsible for that, I'm sorry, that's not what I was trying to accomplish. I was trying to accomplish something else. And by grace, in order for us to understand each other, we have to at least lean into intent to say, okay, if that's not what you meant, then then what that means feels totally different. You see, if you're gonna get to a right understanding of meaning, intent is one of the ingredients that we need to understand. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm telling you this today because the text that we have in front of us is really hard to understand, like really, really hard, right? If you've been tracking with us in Hebrews, one of the things, now I get a lot of the emails that come in response to sermons, and one of the things we heard through the first five chapters of Hebrews is like, I love this study, right? It feels like it is written to me. You don't hear that at all through six, seven, eight in the first part of nine, right? You just hear like, when are we done with this? Um, How long are we taking again to go through this, right? Because it's meaty, it's tied to a context, it's complicated, it's foreign to our culture, right? But I believe that if we understand the broader picture of what the writer was trying to say, what was their intent, then we have some kind of chance at understanding, right? This text is going to reference again an obscure, to the modern mind at least, Old Testament character called Melchizedek and we aren't um, going to have as much information on him as we like. I know some of you are gonna have an interesting chart on who he might have been. Let's talk about it afterwards. Um, But all of those things are gonna be largely supposition, right? because it's frustrating. He's so central to the writer's argument, but to the modern mind, we go like, but we don't know enough about him in order to build a coherent argument for ourselves. So I'm gonna read you the text this morning which we're going to build on again next week, if that helps you to um, diarize your uh, brunch plans for next week, right? To prioritize some of those decisions. We're going to build on it again next week, spoiler alert. But before I do that, I want to remind you clearly of the author's intent. The writer is making a plea to the recipients of this letter. And it's been going like this, right? We're going to have to lean in. We're going to have to really work hard this morning. It's only going to be 40 minutes and we'll be done, all right? Here's what the writer's been saying. Jesus is better. Writing to a Jewish audience, right, who have become persuaded that Jesus is the Messiah. Their long-awaited anointed king has come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They haven't stopped being Jewish. They've just fulfilled their Jewishness in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But now suffering has come. Now perseverance matters because Jesus promised he would be right back, right? And it's been a while. It's been a generation. He hasn't returned in the time frame that they thought he was going to return in. And they haven't seen Israel rise to the political and militaristic dominance that they thought that the Messiah would bring them to. The Messiah is supposed to be the Prince of Peace who brings them relief from their enemies and Rome is crushing them. Destroying them. If anything, it's worse, not better. And so what are some of them saying? Hey, maybe we got it wrong. Let's just go back. Instead of accepting um, uh, forgiveness of sin through the blood of Jesus, let's go back through to the blood of the sacrificial system, right? Instead of accepting the Sermon on the Mount as, as our ultimate authority and guide on, on, on teaching and moral, let's go back to what Moses said, right? Uh, let's go back. Let's go back to our Jewishness. Maybe we got it wrong on the identity of the Messiah. But the writer has been saying, no, please keep going. Why? Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system. Jesus is even better than the heavenly beings that are around us. And so please don't go back to these other modes of justification and sanctification. Uh, Here's your hope. Here's your hope of standing before God. Here's your hope of being transformed. Here's your hope of enduring is that you draw near to Jesus that you cling, that you hold fast to Jesus, and that you stir one another up in affection for Jesus. That will be his summary statement in Hebrews 10. But please, for the love of God, don't go back to your former life. That's the summary of the authorial intent of the letter. Look at what he said as he closed out Hebrews 6. He said, we have this hope in Jesus. As an anchor for the soul, we don't drift around. We don't go from one worldview to another. It's firm and secure. Why? He's the better priest. He enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, he gives us direct access to the Father. He's entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek. Now, that whole section there we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. According to the what? Um, according to the order of Melchizedek is where we get really confused, right? Jesus goes where only the high priest can go, is what he's saying. And he gets to go there forever. He doesn't have to leave because he isn't like other priests. He doesn't sin himself. He doesn't grow old. He doesn't die, right? He's from another order of priests. We've had all of these purely human priests that we know about from the line of uh, Levi, right from the line of Aaron, and, and, and we shouldn't go back to them and to their work in the temple in Jerusalem when they aren't as good and can't be as effective as Jesus our high priest who comes from this other order. right? That's his intent. Does that help us to understand meaning a little bit? I hope so as we go. Look at how he bookends intent at the end of chapter seven. This is me giving away the end a little bit, but we'll only deal with this verse um, at some point in October, just so you know. Um, And you won't remember by then. Um, But verse 25 says, therefore, so here's the intent. So because of this, he has, he's been making this Melchizedek statement and because of this, right, we know that Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. What a comment. For this is the kind of high priest we, ha- we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You need a priest to represent you who is like you but not like you, <laughs> And you get that in Jesus. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Okay, that's the intent. What is he saying? Jesus is the actual priest that we need. So don't go back to the priests who are only a shadow of him. He is able to save completely. He is the son and and, and he can and does represent us perfectly forever. Okay, and they might go, well, do we need the bit in the middle? Well, it's there by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we do. And so we're going to spend some time in it this morning. In order to make this intent clear, the writer now turns to his example, to this figure who is obscure to us but listen, was not obscure to the first hearers. Melchizedek was revered in the literature and the oral tradition of Israel, right? And so when he now says Melchizedek, they they would have shuddered, right? It's like Mufasa um, in The Lion King, right? It's like bringing out the big guns, right? You're like, oh, that's cool, he's from Africa, and he references The Lion King, um, because it must make him feel like home. Yeah, because it's a lot like that. Um, uh, But Melchizedek, right? Now we go, whoa, Melchizedek. Oh, he's revered. He's revered. And the writer's point is like, forget Melchizedek. Jesus is better than even Melchizedek. And they would have gone, what? Better than Melchizedek? Because he was so widely known and loved and admired in the culture today. We just have to build those bridges so that he's not such a strange figure to us, so that we have an understanding of what the writer's saying. You okay? 13 minutes in, let's get to the text. Verse one for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a 10th of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, He remains a priest forever. If you've got your own Bible in front of you, I'd encourage you to bring a text with you to church. It's helpful. Just circle there, resembling the Son of God. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command, according to the Lord to collect a tenth from the people. This is the, the, the tide that goes um, to, to the provision of the operations of the temple of the tabernacle. That is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. What's he saying? There was a real power dynamic between Melchizedek and Abraham. Abraham wasn't with a peer when he was with Melchizedek, right? Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham, for he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Make perfect sense? Easy peasy. It's one of those in your daily devotional. You're like, okay, well, that's a tick in the little religious box. Um, I'm not sure what I got from that, but I read that text. Praise the Lord, right? Something about Levi, Abraham, ancestors, tithing. Oh, I don't like any of those things. So let's move on um, to the rest of my day. Let's do a little bit of work on Melchizedek. But let's remember intent. The writer doesn't want us to be enamored with Melchizedek. He wants us to worship Christ. Melchizedek is amazing. Christ is better. <laughs> and so the work we have to do isn't to look at Melchizedek and say, ooh, Jesus is a bit like Old Mel, right? Rather, the job is to look at Melchizedek and say, Melchizedek is a little bit like our King Jesus. <laughs> he's a shadow, he's a type, he's a pointer. And one day when we get to eternity bowed at the feet of our savior, we'll be in that number, you know, this Melchizedek figure, figure worshiping the king of kings, right? He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament, once in Genesis 14. We should teach through Genesis again one day. HBO wouldn't even make this movie, right? G- They'd be like, too violent, uh, it's too crazy. And they're like, you made everything else, not this, right? Genesis is so wonderful just seeing God's hand over a chaotic group of people, right? Genesis 14, there's a rebellion of four local kings including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they go against an alliance of five other local kings uh, led by by King uh, Cadalomar, who's a Canaanite, right? Not a nice chap known for cruelty, right? The rebellion of these four kings against the five didn't go well, and the four kings and their people get carried off as spoils of war. Lots of them die, all of their stuff gets taken, their cities get razed to the ground, right? And they get carried off into captivity. In that number is a chap called Lot, right? And he's the nephew of Abraham, right? And Lot and his family get carried off by this Canaanite king. And so Abraham, I love this dude. He's got so much surprising spine at times and then he's so spineless at others. He's a lot like us, right? He takes 318 fighting men against the Canaanite kings, right? They are outnumbered by a lot. And he's like, we're gonna go get this done, right? It's like, um... I can't even think what it's like. It's crazy, right? And he goes after these convoys of armies and their loot, and he wins. And and they they destroy these kings. They put them to, to fleeing, and he brings his family back. When Abraham returns from this, he gets a visit from thankful kings. And so thankful kings come and knock on his tent, and they wanna say thank you for this liberation. And somewhere in that party appears this mysterious figure, Melchizedek. Right? And so Abraham's assistant is like, um, I've got Melchizedek at the door. He's like, who's that? He's like, is this king of Salem? Um, and Abraham's like, show him in, right? Um, this mysterious figure. Um, and, and he arrives, and he is a priest to God Most High and a king of Salem. And, and now, Salem means peace, but it can also be short for Jerusalem, right? And so there are some that say that he is king of that region. He blesses Abraham. He serves him bread and wine, and he receives an offering of a tenth of all of Abraham's spoils. They have church together in the desert, right? There's God's blessing pronounced, there's the receipt of sacrificial giving, right? Uh, There's the distributing of bread and wine, there's prayer together, it's amazing. But what does it all suggest? He's superior to Abraham. Abraham looks at Melchizedek and says, we're not the same. We're not the same. So you get to speak blessing over me. I give you a 10th of everything that I possess, right? And I receive your offer of bread and wine. Only the superior could give that to the inferior. And then, gone. You don't see him again in the narrative of God's people. He appears once more in Psalm 110. Psalm 110, for the Bible nerds in the room, is the most frequently quoted Psalm in the New Testament. It's a messianic declaration from David that says that the Messiah will be a king like no other and that the Messiah will also be a priest like no other. He won't be from the line of Aaron like the other priests. He will be, co- be according to the pattern of Melchizedek. He will be a totally different type of priest. And when he comes, then he will be priest forever, which means that there will no longer be any need. Listen. There will no longer be any need for priests from the Levitical line. That is a big deal that Jewish followers of Jesus read Psalm 110 and said, if you believe the Messiah has come, then the priesthood is done. You don't go back to it because now we have a priest from the line of Melchizedek who isn't appointed according to his birth line, but is appointed by God. And so now we rely on him alone for atonement. That's what every young Jewish scholar was waiting for. And the recipients of the Hebrews believed they had found it in Jesus. That's why they mustn't go back. That's why they mustn't go back, okay? Melchizedek, two mentions in the Old Testament, eight mentions in the book of Hebrews, (laughs) he's trying to make a point. The writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is the priest from the line of Melchizedek. Their wait is over. They shouldn't be looking to the priesthood any more. It's realized in Jesus, okay? So now you understand the intent to those hearers. What do we learn? What do we learn? I mean, the idea um, of a priesthood is quite abstract and obscure to most of us, and I've got thoughts on that. I'll explain that in a minute, right? But if the writer's intent in drawing our attention to Melchizedek is to get us to hold fast to Jesus, then what can we learn about Jesus from Melchizedek that would make us do that? If Psalm 110 tells us that the Messiah's priesthood would be according to the same pattern as Melchizedek, then what is it about that pattern that increases our confidence in Jesus today? Four things, are we just getting to the first point now? We're just getting to the first point now. Four things and two observations, Then we're gonna receive bread and wine, all right? Number one, in Jesus, in Jesus, we have a priest who is a king, and a king who is a priest. Just like after the order of Melchizedek, a priest who is a king, and a king who is a priest. Look at the end of chapter six again and the start of chapter seven. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem and priest of God most high, right? These are are terms that they wouldn't be used to seeing collided together in one identity. There are only two people in all of scripture who are said to legitimately be a priest and a king in and amongst God's people. The one is Melchizedek, the other one is Jesus, right? That's church, guys, the answer's always Jesus, right? Jesus, yes, it's Jesus, right? There was an established and necessary separation of powers in the governance and spiritual leadership of Israel because it would have been a massive conflict of interest for someone to be priest and king. King Saul tried it. It didn't go well for him, right? Instead of waiting for the priests to do what only they could do, he decided that he would enter into that, that holy operation, right? And God punished him for that overreach. God saying, stay in your lane. You get kings, they rule in this way. You get priests, they represent in this way. They're never the same person in and amongst a sinful mix except for Melchizedek and Jesus. Why? You see, the king represented the strength of the people. The priest represented the weakness of the people. The king offered authority and leadership. The priest offered grace and absolution. The king wielded the sword of the law against transgressors. The priest offered up sacrifices on behalf of those same transgressors. Now listen, (laughs) I've been in America five years, I love this country so much. But it's tough, especially in America, in the West, broadly, but especially in America, it's tough for us to get our heads around the notion of kings and priests. Why? We literally founded the nation to not be governed (laughs) by kings and priests, right? We looked at England, we're like kings and priests, no thank you, no thank you, right? And that's before we even knew what King Charles would be like, right? We were like not interested, right? We're going to go a different way. And so instead of kings, we've got this representative democracy, right? Which is very convoluted, um, but is a, 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 perhaps a more just form of, of that kind of leadership. Um, and instead of priests, we said we want a separation of church and state. We don't want priests in the higher halls of power, right? We wanna be able to pull those two avenues of our lives apart from each other. But listen, that doesn't mean we don't look for kings and we don't look for priests. It's ingrained in us to do it. We just do it in different ways today. Who will represent us in power? And so we still look for a king. We we, we do it through different modes to be sure. But we still want someone to extend the arm of the law in a way that brings flourishing for society. Now this is no bad thing. Right? Uh, th- there's a common grace in this. There's ways for societies to flourish and ways for societies to flounder. Right? And, and we wanna have someone represent us who, who does it in a way of flourishing. But what is our mode of thinking? Well, that person needs to be like a strong king. <laughs> and they need to go represent our best interests to the world. They need to represent our strengths to the world. Now, some of you might go, okay, yeah, I can see that, but we don't really have priests here in Protestantism. Oh, we do. Pop stars actors, screenwriters, representing our weakness. But instead of like the priests of old who would take that weakness in humility and contrition and would say that joy only comes in declaring that weakness to a God who offers absolution and perfection, and righteousness is in its place. Our modern priests take our weakness and say in those things we have identity, in those things we have freedom, and what we don't need is absolution, what we need is acceptance. And so the problem isn't in here with things that are broken in here that need to be fixed by a righteous God, the problem is out there in a society that refuses to accept me just the way I am, with all of my base desires, with no restrictions, just how I I want to be and the priests go and represent us and say no you be you the problem is them and what happens we find our hope we've still got priests they just don't offer us absolution in the way that they were supposed to because the path to absolution is not you must accept my brokenness the path to absolution is I'm broken and so I repent I need atonement I need mercy, I need forgiveness, I need change. And the priest is supposed to offer that. We've just chosen the wrong priests, right? Friends, in Jesus, you have one who can be both your king, your strong representative, representing your best interests to the world with a sword that comes from his mouth. He's not just king of Salem, he's king of kings, able to rule in might and majesty like no other but you also have the most tender and sympathetic of priests. Able to identify with the weaknesses of the people and able to stand in the gap on their behalf and not willing to offer you the cheap solutions of the world that says, no, well, your path to joy is just acceptance of self. Rather saying, no, your path to joy is repentance and God's mercy through which you might receive full and genuine acceptance. How do you view King Jesus? Purely as the authoritative law enforcer, or purely as the compassionate grace giver. The writer of the Hebrews is trying to get us to hold fast to Jesus in his fullness as the only one who can be fully priest. And fully king. Friends, he's able to meet you in your weakness. (laughs) But when he does that, he's also able to offer you his strength. He does command things of you because he's the king of kings. And he has all authority in heaven and on earth, right? And yet in your weakness, when we fail to obey those commands, he's also priest of priests who offers the payment for our sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right, Holy Spirit help us. Almost none of that was in the notes. Second point. In Jesus, we have both righteousness and peace. Let me go quickly. You've got a king and a priest, but then you also get righteousness and peace. Look what it says. First his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Now this point is similar, but distinct and no less important. Melchizedek's name means both king of righteousness and king of peace. And outside of Jesus, there's a real tension in how we could ever experience them both. Why? Well, righteousness means being in right standing as one who has upheld the law of God. All right? It is on that basis that we can have peace with God. So it requires righteousness in order to have peace with God. But, has anyone noticed? We aren't righteous. (laughs) And we know it. We don't uphold the perfect law of God, and so we have no chance of peace with him. But, oh please darling, if you've been in church for a long time, you've become kind of immune to some of these things. The scandal of the gospel is that Jesus, listen, offers righteousness to the ungodly. And the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus offers peace to the natural enemies of God. He doesn't make good people a little bit better. He makes, he makes enemies into sons. He makes sinners into saints. Look at what Paul says in Romans 4. This legitimately changed my life. He says, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed, right? He's like, so if you're gonna work according to karma in the universe, that's how it works, right? You do this, the universe does that. You get paid, right? That's payment, that's not grace, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who, oh my goodness, justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Martin Luther got totally undone by this verse and and accelerated the process of the Protestant reformation. And, and he embraced a little phrase in Latin that if I was ever gonna get a tattoo, I will because I'm 44 years old, and my skin's barely clinging on, right? Um, and so I'd have to get one like super condensed so that it could just stretch out with time. and It would be like one of those revealed meanings. i am like, oh, oh, I see it now, right? At first it was just a lion, and then it's like, oh, it's actually an elephant. Um, you just gotta wait for it to stretch out, and the wait isn't long, right? Um, but if I was gonna get one, I'll put it on my right arm and i would say this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccato. Simultaneously justified and a sinner. <laughs> Why? Because the holy God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> That's scandalous. Jesus isn't just like a regular priest who's able to stand in intercession on behalf of the ungodly and able to offer them temporary absolution through sacrifice. No, he's the king of righteousness. And when the king issues a decree, it is done. And he decrees over his children, righteous. Righteous, righteous. You're like, have you met me? He's like, I have. Righteous, not because of you, because of me. I decree it and it is so. I speak it and it becomes reality. And he gives us the gift of righteousness and he gives it to the ungodly. He isn't just willing to overlook our offenses or be patient with them. Rather, he's able to change our identity and bring us into an eternal standing of peace with God. It's too much for my mind to comprehend. It's too much for my mouth to be able to articulate. I just hope the Spirit helps you get it. Simul justus et peccato. You're a justified sinner. Why? He justifies and declares righteous, the ungodly. That's you you're looking for you in the Bible, you're like, the ungodly, there I am. There, that's me, right? And what happens? He justifies the ungodly through faith. Unbelievable. Third one. In Jesus, we have eternal representation and security. Look at what the writer says. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Here the author makes the observation that Melchizedek had no record of lineage, or genealogy, no record of birth or death. Now listen, this matters because according, in accordance to the law, for priests, the genealogy was crucial. If you couldn't show in your genealogy that you were from the tribe of Levi, you couldn't be a priest. If you couldn't show that you were from the line of Aaron, you couldn't be a priest, right? From one tribe, from one line, from one family tree, right? And yet Melchizedek didn't have a record of genealogy in any of this. Now listen, some people say that this suggests he's immortal, all right? I'm not sure that that's what the writer's saying. I think the writer's saying that this means his priesthood was unique. Melchizedek was not a priest because his father was a priest. He wasn't carrying on the family business. Melchizedek was a priest because God appointed him to be a priest. And Jesus is our priest because the father appoints him as such. Now listen, the good news of that is he can't take it away. Right? Now the argument isn't that Jesus is like Melchizedek. The argument is that Melchizedek is like Jesus. He resembles him. And so in the same way that the priesthood of Melchizedek cannot be taken from him, the priesthood of Jesus cannot be taken from him. Why? not just because Jesus is eternal, but because Jesus overcame death. Let me steal from next week a little bit. Hebrews seven fifteen and 16, and I'm nearly done. It says, and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. <laughs> Jesus is alive. And so he's able to serve as your priest and rescue you as your savior and love you as your Lord because he conquered death itself. Friends, here's the great news of this. Jesus will outlast you. You got lots of sin, he has more grace. You got lots of shame, he has more righteousness. He's seen it all, he will solve it all, he will outlast you. Hold fast to this eternal king, this eternal priest, who the scripture says always lives, always lives to represent you in the heavenly courts. What's he doing right now? Standing on your behalf, if you're a Christian, saying, no, that one's righteous, that one's righteous. Oh, did you see it last night, six? That one saw what happened there? Yeah, saw that, still righteous, right? Through repentance, by faith. I give them the grace and the righteous standing before the Father. Last observation, goodness me. In Jesus, happy Father's Day, by the way. Um, Yeah, in Jesus, we have every blessing we could ever need. I forgot that bit. Um, Dad, you're awesome. Uh, If your dad wasn't awesome, go to counseling. I mean it, right? No, that's not mocking your story. I mean it. Go to counseling. It's the only way you're gonna resolve it, right? Last one. Good job, preacher. Um, <laughs> in Jesus, we have every blessing we could ever need. Look at what Melchizedek did to Abraham. He said, "But one without this lineage." Verse six collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Why? Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. When you get home, you can read it, right? It's a beautiful moment where Melchizedek speaks God's favor. It's actually a wonderful prayer moment. He speaks God's favor and blessing over Abraham. And, and, and there's this amazing thing in blessing, speaking blessing in the Old Testament in a way that, that actually harnesses a spiritual reality, right? It's this big deal in Old Testament times. But because of that, not everyone could do it. Only the superior could speak blessing over an inferior, and their words carried this tremendous power. The writer is saying, hey, Melchizedek spoke blessing over Abraham. What do you think Christ speaks over you? What do you think Christ speaks over you? Some of you can get to the point where I say, I think he forgives me, but it's kind of a what if we started to realize that his righteousness is so comprehensive that he offers to believers that the only thing he has to speak to us now is this incredible blessing, right? Now there's correction, there's admonition, but even that is part of this incredible blessing. That's his posture towards us. Look at how Paul says that in Christ, God has spoken his greatest word of blessing over you and I. Now, Ephesians 1, oh, I'm out of time, I'm so sorry. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. I don't have time to run through it, but it's amazing he's gonna go then through every way that Christ has blessed you already. Listen, if you're a Christian, you are already abundantly blessed. Oh, I just want the blessings of the Lord. You have them in Christ. Uh, How many, Paul? Every spiritual blessings in the heavens. (laughs) He hasn't withheld a single one. We are blessed people. Lift your head. Lift your head. You're so blessed by Christ. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and that must have been amazing. Amazing. But we've been blessed by Christ. We just forget the privileges and blessings that we have in him. Okay. That was a lot. What do we get from all of this? Well, if Jesus is a priest, what do we do in response? If he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek, what can we learn from the way that Abraham responded to Melchizedek? Abraham did two things in response to Melchizedek. The first is he gave to him. And so in response to our high priest, we give to him. Abraham gave a 10th of all that he had as an act of worship. He feels so blessed by the presence of the priest king that his life is opened up and he adopts a posture that says, it's yours. What I have is yours, take it. Friends, this is the posture of those who have encountered the priest who is king and the king who is priest. What are you withholding from your Lord today? Posture of true worship, true trust, true acceptance, true belief is, oh no, it's yours, take it. My stuff. My relationships, my sin patterns, my desires, my own tendencies, my weird personality, take it. My plans, my hopes, my dreams, take it. But it's not just this one-way engagement. What else does Abraham do? He receives from him. And so what else do we do with this priest king? We receive from him. In Genesis 14, we're told that Melchizedek brings some things for Abraham. You know what they are? Bread and wine. I like visitors like that. They bring carbohydrates and the fruit of the vine, right? Can I come in anytime? Yes, come, come in, right? What a beautiful picture. What a foreshadow of Christ. It comes to his church with bread and with wine and with blessing to all who will receive. And so today, friends, you will have opportunity to receive bread and wine, not just from our communion stewards, but from the king of righteousness and from the king of peace. And so if you're a Christian today, as you receive the bread, you remember that the righteousness of Christ is given to the ungodly. Look at that piece of bread and go, simul justus et peccator. I'm a sinner and I'm justified by God. What freedom? And as you receive the cup today, if you're a believer, you remember that the peace of Christ is given to those who are covered in the blood of Christ. And so you can lift high the cup of salvation like Psalm 116 says, right? You can pose a toast to the Lord's blessing and to his goodness, and you can drink deeply of his love. Melchizedek, I'm not sure who he is, but he's awesome. Jesus is better way better, don't go back, Father God, thank you so much for your word, Lord I pray that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to digest and believe and apply complex truths today in a way that isn't just head knowledge that puffs us up, but rather is heart transformation that brings us low and that in that lowliest state we would find true blessing. Lord, I pray that we would stop trying to find hope in the kings of this world who would represent our strength. I pray that we would stop trying to find hope in the priests of this world who would try to somehow mask our shame by telling us that it isn't shame in the first place. Rather, I pray that we would come to you as we really are in all our brokenness and know that in your son Jesus, we have a priest who stands in the gap, who offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And I pray that we would know that we have a king who leads us out of our own desires and destruction towards his glorious kingdom where we can't wait to be ruling and reigning with him one day. In the meanwhile, help us to hold fast. Help us to hold fast. Help us to hold fast. In Jesus' name.